Welcome to the KB Movie Podcast. I'm Andy Davis and this is episode 9 of season 7. I'm recording this up in the loft today and I'll be honest, it's colder up here than a weekend Tauntaun riding city break on Hoth. Uh, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Speaking of potentially icy atmospheres, today we're talking about the relationship between retailers and suppliers. So many talk about it being a partnership, but what exactly does that mean? What is it that would make retailers think of their relationship with a supplier as a true partnership, rather than just a transactional placement of orders? How much of it is about formal agreements, and how much of it is about gut feeling? You simply know when it's working, rather than measuring when it's working. And how much responsibility do you, the retailer, have to understand what the supplier wants from the partnership too? To discuss it all, we have the return of two podcast stalwarts, Paul Crow from Ripples and Tony Robson from Daytrue in London. But first, have you listened yet to our special bonus podcast series on this year's KBB Review Retail and Design Awards 2023? You'll find them in the same feed that this episode sits in, and we're talking to finalists and judges as we build up to the big event itself, which is on April the 20th in Cardiff. It's all courtesy of our Awards 2023 podcast partner, Sonas Bathroot. You can listen now at kbbreview.com forward slash awards podcast or simply search kbbreview, or one word, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in fact, anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'll also put all these links in this episode's description. They're lots of fun, so check them out. Okay, here we go. Joining me down the line, we have Tony Robson from Daytrue. Hello, Tony. Hi, Andy. Hope you're well. I'm very well, thank you. And we have Paul Crow from Ripples. Hello, Paul. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Tony. Morning, Paul. Now, let's start with you, Tony. Let's jump straight in, because you've been very vocal about how you feel the relationship between retailers and suppliers should be. And I can't help but think that partnership is a word that's used much more by suppliers than retailers. So do you think, as a retailer, it's possible to have a true partnership with a supplier? Or is there always going to be a degree of arm's length about it? Uh, no, you know, I think there can be a partnership without question. And, and there are suppliers that we deal with day to day that, you know, I would class as, as a good partner. You know, I've just been away with Vizog. I've just literally been to Switzerland overnight with them to go and see their factories, the first factory tours that they've been doing since since COVID. And the way that they approach their customers is very partnership-based. It's very supportive. They listen, you know, not only two weeks before I was having breakfast with the UK MD, who was, you know, what do we, what can we do better? What can we do to improve and things like that? So there, there are, without question, people out there, and I think Paul would hopefully say the same, you know, and I, and I believe there can be partnerships. And when those partnerships are there like that, does it make the relationships that aren't a partnership all the more obvious? It does, yeah. And, and there's, varying, there's varying degrees of obvious when you have suppliers or partners that will take an order off you but can't then tell you when the products will arrive and put you on stop if, you, if you've got a backlog of products that haven't arrived and things like that. It makes that a very obvious thing because then you just feel, do feel like a number rather than a partner. Paul, we'll move on to your definition of partnership in a bit because you've got a fantastic list that we're going to go through. But is partnership a word you use when you're dealing with suppliers on behalf of your franchisees? Is that is that part of the, the language? It is, and it's it's part of the language we use ourselves with our own franchisees. You know, we, we call them franchise partners. And 
Well, we probably use it too much. I think everybody does, but only in a well-intended way because we want to demonstrate that we're we're close. I guess is probably the better word. But I think ultimately it's um, it's it's overused. Yeah, fine. I don't have a problem with that. I'm guilty of it. But I think it's probably it's not understood consistently as a word, which I guess is the whole point of you asking these questions. And I think it's not understood because it's not actually very easily defined. I think different people rightly so have different ways of measuring what they expect from somebody, you know, whether it's an organization or you could argue there's a partnership with employees these days, which I'm not against hearing or saying. So in effect, it comes back to what you're you're looking to define it as, how you measure it and um, your own view of it. But I'm not sure you're going to get consistency either side of the table when you have those conversations because people ultimately have different aims at the end of the day. Charlie, it's interesting you talked about going for lunch with with the UK guy, with David from Vizog there. Are partnerships with the company or are they with the people you deal with at that company? In other words, if someone leaves, can that feeling of partnership wither pretty quickly? And likewise, would you switch to the supplier that person has moved to? Is it all about people, really? I think people have a strong part in it. I think this day and age, I think if the company are working very hard on creating a culture, Therefore, if someone leaves, someone comes in and, and buys into that culture and, and works within that culture, then the company have done their job. Why would you leave a company that has the same culture, whoever's, whoever's leading it? it? You know, in the in the greatest way, if someone then left and went somewhere else, he would hopefully then put that great culture into the place where it has in, and you could end up having two great suppliers with a great culture. Um, it's quite interesting, really, with Visa because they don't call it partnerships. They call it being part of the family, which is... Probably a better word, because like any families, you don't always get on. You do have the odd row, but you come together at the end, don't you? <laughs> yes, like the Gallagher brothers or something. And, and, and there's no doubt they'll come back one day when it comes to money. Well, exactly. They can sell Wembley Stadium out for 10 years. Yeah. So look, Paul, obviously a partnership goes both ways. So obviously you're both retailers, so you're going to look at it from what suppliers can do for you. But what's the reasonable expectation a supplier should have of a retailer, do you think? What's the, what's the partnership the other way? And do you think retailers are very good at it? Crikey, that's a question. I guess I don't know if, if we're good at it because I'm not sure that we're always going to get... Um people sat in front of you taking money from you and and you know getting good figures or growth are going to say nice things so i guess what i would assume and and what i hear is they look from a retailer is probably as much as anything is consistency on the whole they want to kind of know that when they look in the whites of your eyes that you're you're taking what they're trying to achieve seriously and trying to help them do it and if you're giving it your best shot on the whole i would say regardless of what figures are coming out the other end they recognize that and then we'll try and find ways to make it work for you. And if there's a big boy dealer down the road who's doing bigger figures, I don't think you'd necessarily get treated any differently in most cases. I think that they recognize what you're doing, understand you, your aims, your frustrations, maybe some of the challenges you've got, and then we'll invest in making it work for you. But they want to know that you're doing the same and that you're not a brand collector and those sorts of terms. And I think it comes back to probably the word commitment. They just want to know that it's worth their effort. And that's measured again in so many different ways. If you're not, if you haven't got the time of day for them when their team turn up to have a meeting with you, A, that's rude. And, and, and B, well, are you taking them seriously? So why should they take you seriously? So it probably comes back to a human level. Then it comes back to a, um, a commitment level in terms of your actions. And then I'm probably finally it comes back to figures, but not always in that order. I think the brand collection bit, Paul, is quite interesting because, you know, it's something that we from day one chose not to do. 
Um, you know, I won't even be dictated to by a supplier on how many ranges or products I have in my show. It's my showroom. I love what products I want in it. But certainly, we have always tried to have two, maximum three in each category, and then do our very best with those brands that we have within our showroom, rather than have, you know, 10 tap manufacturers and, you know, water down any turnover. For me, I absolutely buy into what you're saying there. It's having two or three and doing your best to try and sell the ones that you've chosen and chose to be a partner with. I think that's a great point, yeah. So do you think, therefore, that where there are brands who, if you like, force you to have a certain amount of space in your showroom or a certain number of displays, that that is not necessarily a partnership, that is more a forced transactional relationship, that they don't trust you to sell their product enough, so therefore they're making you have a certain amount of space? Is that partnership or not? I can honestly say I can't think of a supplier that face-to-face in a meeting room has such a requirement. And, and although they exist and, 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 and we trade with them and they, and they have that written down or have said it at some point in the past, I think on the whole, it comes back to they do look into that commitment aspect. But I also think it's such an outdated concept that it's absolutely no measure of success, no measure of commitment, attitude, what you can sell from that range, top end, low end. Not all dealers are ever going to be the same. And anybody that just wants space, for me, they're just ticking a box. They can almost say, yeah, we've ticked a box. You've got a certain amount of displays. If that's their primary measure, then they're getting it wrong and they're going to go backwards, in my view. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Paul. I mean, there's only ever two people that have not sort of said, okay, we get the day true way, so we're not going to deal with you. And and I've never dealt with them, you know, because of that. Because we don't have hundreds of displays, we, we you know, it's more room sets for us. It's impossible for us to do it. And we sell very successfully by having two or three products from them from a manufacturer and then selling the rest from a brochure. We're quite lucky, particularly in the kitchen market, to have a lot of appliance suppliers on Wigmore Street and things like that where we can go to if people want to see a bigger range and stuff. But and also some bathroom manufacturers as well. But yeah, totally agree with what Paul says there. So Tony, you've been very vocal in the past about calling for service level agreements between the retailer and the supplier and vice versa. Is that to compensate for the lack of this feeling of partnership or is it to complement it as part of that partnership? Yeah, for me, I mean, it's an agreement. It's between two parties. So it's it's for me, it's to complement it, it's to cement it. It's for us to both know what we're aiming for. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough to be on both sides of the fence. You know, I've been a rep, I've been a key account manager, I've been a national account manager i've been a sales director and the greatest success that i had even from the areas you know the the repping days was you know i had plans in place with my better clients and then the ones that weren't so better but still wanted to see me every now and again they kind of knew and we agreed a, a, a plan of when i'd go in but you know i had i was always pushed to have 12 to 16 good clients that we had plans in place with. And a plan, service, level agreement, whatever you want to call it, it was an agreement between the two of us on how we were going to try to drive business for both of us, for for the common goal. So what do you think, Paul? Should these partnerships be defined more more in that way by having sort of agreements between the two of you? Or is a kind of handshake and a gentleman's agreement uh, a better way of doing it? I'm actually not sure Andrew's the truth. And, uh, you know, for clarity, I've, I, I know that Tony had a lot of problems because he sells kitchens. And I think that had a lot wider issues to deal with, you know, through COVID than bathrooms did. I could totally understand you know, when I was seeing his post on LinkedIn a long time ago, for example, how I felt that as a retailer, he was right at the very end of a process and being very poorly treated by suppliers. And of course, that means he was able to poorly treat his customers, which is really not 
a great place to be. And so I felt that the, the, the comments that Tony's making were absolutely spot on. I think that on the whole, I think that they're needed. As Tony said, they've got to be entered into the right spirit. They've got to be a, what do you want from this? And, and what are the measures of, of service? You know, how many orders are truly going to be delivered on time, complete and, and in full and undamaged? And it's never going to be 100%, but are you at 99, 98, 97? These are, I think, proper measures that should exist. But I also think that we've got to be careful before we rush in, because the more that you write on the list one side of the table, the more the supplier writes the other end. And that kind of then contradicts you know, the earlier conversation that we've had about display numbers a little bit where we say, just judge us for who we are, how we do it, the commitment that we give and, you know, giving it our best shot, because that isn't necessarily measurable either. I personally prefer or have coped without them. But at the same time, we do actually have a framework that we use to try to educate the suppliers or, or perhaps better word to explain to suppliers what what works for us as a business. And we, we remind them when they're not doing it, you know, so I guess we kind of have it, but it's not a document that both parties have signed. It doesn't have too many measures beyond, you know, we expect you to visit us this often. We expect your data to be in these systems and that sort of thing. But we don't put, um, per se, targets in there, delivery ratios. And if we did, I think we'd end up getting wrapped up in spreadsheets and reports and arguing when actually the real decision is, are they doing their best and are we doing our best? And does it feel right? And I I think that's where the independent sector does very well, because actually everyone just rolls their sleeves up and gets on with it on the whole. I think you're right to raise the fact it's the independent sector, because I think one of the big differences with this particular market is the independent retailer's reputation is wrapped up with the performance of the people who supply them. So when the supplier is doing well, it enhances the retailer's reputation. But when the supplier is doing badly, the retailer gets to blame by the consumer, obviously, and therefore their reputation is damaged. It feels very personal, I suppose, is what makes this partnership much more of an evocative word in this sector than it would do if you're just supplying curries or whatever it is. Well, also, Tony and I both have businesses that are ultimately selling to customers that are really paying for a much higher level of service. They have much higher expectations. And we really have got to work hard to just keep them on board sometimes. And I've never met a supplier that's as good as us at that. And I don't think that we ever will or perhaps even should expect to. And I'm sure Tony can say the same. So actually, you are on a damage limitation exercise every single day. There's no such thing as Every day. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just constant. So all you can do is be a buffer to the best of your ability to, to not eliminate those issues, but to reduce them. And all your efforts, you know, this, you know, you demand all the margin, you retailers, you know, you make all of the money. That's a massive, massive cost associated with providing a service. Tangible costs, intangible costs. It's just harder and harder and harder. And that's fine. You know, we, we've chosen that. We've chosen our product range. We've chosen our, our stalls to set out, if you like. But I do think it's underestimated by every supplier, actually, just how hard that is to truly look after a consumer. Yeah. And you're right in pointing out kitchens, Paul, to be honest, because it's, it's been a lot worse in kitchens. You're right. You know, I've had, I've had clients with holes in where we finished the kitchen, but they've got a hole in where their oven's meant to be for, for six months. And without being, being able to tell them when you're going to be able to fit their oven and things like that. And we've, we've had things where we've had to take ovens out, put new ovens in at cost to us, you know, not just the cost of the fitter going out to do it, but actually we've got, you know, ovens that have been used sitting in our warehouse because we've had to use another brand to, to satisfy the client. And it's had a, it has had a massive detrimental 
cash effect on our business, you know, and I don't think that it's appreciated at all, to be honest with you. And it's not, and it, but it's not just kitchens, it, you know, it's bathrooms as well in, in some cases, you know. We've had an example this week where we've had a basin come out. It should have been no tap hole. It came with three tap holes in it. We now have to order another one. It's a three-week delay. It comes out. I then have to get a fitter out or the client has to get their fitter to come back. There's a cost there. Who's going to pay for that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Paul's right. As soon as you sell a project and you make a margin on it, I always say that's when the margin starts eroding as soon as you've sold it. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. And who gets the customer review, the supplier or the retailer? <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So this is very broad and a very rule of thumb thing, but is it easier to have a partnership as we're talking about it with a smaller supplier than it is with a large sort of multinational company? You're talking about Vizog, as I, and it's purely an example, but you're talking about Vizog. Clearly in the UK, they're a much smaller outfit than BSH or Milarar or somebody similar. So is it easier to have a partnership the smaller the supplier? I would say it's the same. It's about attitude. You know, we have partnerships with small, smaller suppliers that still let us down continuously. And of course, you can walk away from these people, but the cost of doing that sometimes is, is prohibitive. You know, for me, it's about attitude. It's about, you know, like I said, the Visa family. The culture that they are trying to create can be from a multinational down to a, to an individual company, a much smaller company. I don't think there should be any difference. What do you think, Paul? The bathroom market has massive suppliers and companies, which you deal with, but there's also much smaller, sort of more bespoke type ones. What do you think? Who who gives the best partnership? I totally agree with Tony. The ones that are trying to, basically. The ones that we've consistently shown the most growth with, whether it be through our expansion, continuing to work with them, or just growing figures in existing stores. It's the company who've got an attitude from the very top to try to help you achieve business for them. And it's cultural, it's consistency. I could name companies like Laufen, Dansani, Hans Grower are all working really, really hard at each area of the business to try to make them a convenient company to deal with that basically just makes it a little bit easier than maybe somebody else. And they've got a good, consistent track record and others that I haven't named. And they're the ones that will continually be rewarded by us. But it comes from the very top. It comes from... Um, a desire to do it, good systems, good stock, good investment, good products. And as Tony said, he's hit the nail on the head. It's not the margin offered to you with a sticker on the price list. It's your retained margin. And this is what it always comes back to. It's that Oasis comment. It will always come back to money. In the overall period of time that I choose to measure it, it could be 12 months, five years, 10 years, it doesn't matter. Is this actually worth the trouble financially for me? That's, that's really what it boils down to. So they help you and it becomes about a consistent thing and you know where you are with it you're normally going to stick with that supplier. Well, look, what we're going to do, I deliberately haven't asked you to define what a good partnership is because, Paul, you've literally done that already with a list of 10 things that you think make one. But first of all, tell us the origin of this list. How did it come about? Well, I hope I don't say too much uh, at the detriment of um, our friends at Laufen, but basically we started business with uh, Laufen many, many years ago, probably sort of 15, 18 years ago. And it didn't really go in the direction that either of us wanted it to go, fizzled out and to t- pretty much nothing. And then uh, I guess an old friend of Ripple's had uh, started to make good progress in management, a chap called Jamie Welch, who's a sales director now. And um, I sat down with him and he's relatively local to our office and we, we popped over to the supermarket that was opposite for some sort of thinking time really. And um, he said to me, what do you need for us to be a success for your business? Which I guess is the same question. And we scribbled it all out on a piece of paper next to our um, Jackie Potatoes in Morrison's. 
and it came to 10 things. And, and if I'm truthful, Andrew, the, the key point was is that he was nervous that the trading terms wouldn't be that attractive compared to others that were in the marketplace at that time. And I said to him, it isn't just about that. Trust me, it's not about that. And that's why we formed this list to, I guess, articulate and demonstrate that we need much more than just a, a number on a piece of paper on an invoice when we order the goods. So when we started to list those things, he said, well, we do all of that. And I said, well, then tell people. And, and then, of course, I could say the rest is history. We've just had a record year with them and, and did so the year before as well. The question we all want to know now, Paul, is did you have cheese, beans or both <laughs> on that jacket potato? You're going to shock us and say tuna now or something, aren't you? <laughs> well, do you know, no, I never, ever, ever, ever have tuna. I never, ever have baked beans. So it's always cheese. And if I'm having a treat, I chuck a bit of coleslaw on there as well. Right. Well, well, very Morrison's. <laughs> well, it was about, I, I, can, I can tell you, this is a four pound meal. It's one of the cheapest expenses meals he's ever had. <laughs> and obviously, Tony, what's your baked potato choice? Uh, it, cheese and beans, but cheese first and then let the beans melt. So the, the potato melts the cheese from the beans and the potato at the same time. No butter, though. So, yes, I would agree with all of that, but Ooh. I'm going to let you into a little baked potato secret. Go on. Cheese and beans, Worcester sauce. Oh, yes. Yeah. I can see that working, yes. yeah. There you yeah. go. Anyway. I feel like I've got two Northerners on the podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, no, but we both live in London now, so it'd be like a sweet potato or something. Yeah, okay. yeah. Avocado jacket potato. <laughs> yeah. Right. So look, let's go through this list, and we'll see what it is in context of what we've already been talking about, and we'll see what you think, Tony. Number one, I think it's the obvious one here, but it's a product that is both high quality and desirable to our customers. Is that the first thing you literally look at? I mean, is, does everything else stem from the fact that clearly you've got, it's got to be a product that you can sell? Yes. If you don't like the product, Andrew, you just don't sell it. And, and I've put together in the past some cracking trading agreements with great partners that have gone absolutely nowhere because our design team just can't get excited about it. And I've just got it wrong. Likewise, I've had things where we maybe felt it was a okay agreement and the designers have absolutely loved it and it's flown. So if, if we have a design team, 10 of them are going out to wish. If they don't like it, it doesn't sell. Full stop. I mean, the desirable to our customers bit is really interesting because there are certain products that come along every now and again that customers walk in and ask for. It doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often. But when it does happen and you don't stock it, that could be detrimental to you, even if you don't particularly want to deal with that company. We've said no a few times. Uh, if we feel that it's because of quality, I won't name brands, but we've had a lot of requirements for digital showers in the past that we think were their last five minutes, frankly. I'm not going there. This is not a consumable product at the end of the day. And we've therefore resisted it. I mean, we've probably sold a few over the years, but we, we try to resist it and steer them onto something else. So we do set a limit. We try to recognize our, our long-term interests ahead of our short-term ones. On a kitchen basis, I think Quokka are an amazing example of this, who don't offer the greatest terms in the world. But what you do get from them is a fantastic product that is really beautifully designed, that people come in and ask for because of the way that they market to the end user and offer as a business an amazing service. So, yes, we're not making the greatest margin in the world, but they tick the box absolutely everywhere else. So as an overall package they're a fantastic supplier. But do you have a partnership with them? Uh, yes, to a degree, yeah, we do. Um, it's not defined. We don't have an agreement in praise, but we speak to them regularly. We have regular calls from their, their reps. If there's any issues, they sort it out properly. I would suggest 
they're bloody good at what they do. And I would suggest that, you know, most people that deal with Kruka feel like that they have a partnership with them, if, if that's the term we're going to use. All right, so look, number two here is really interesting. For when this list was drawn up, Paul, mm. that how, how much this has become such a debatable su- subject in the last few years. But number two on your list is a sustained high delivery on time and in full percentages. Yeah. <laughs> Now, <laughs> yeah, it's good luck with that one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That one is filed under easier said than done at the moment. But is part of that now about how willing people are to have a conversation about it, as opposed to just sort of shutting the doors and pretending it's not happening? I can tell you, Angie. Years ago, a supplier came to me, and I hadn't paid them on time. I was sat running the bath showroom. I couldn't pay them on time because we weren't doing well enough in that particular month. It was my problem. It should never be their problem, but I, I needed their help. It was as simple as that. And that happens. And I'm not embarrassed to say it. I don't think there's a few people been in that situation. So I got a hard time from the area manager and I got out a report from the system that we had in place, which I think we were one of the first to put in place. And I listed every delivery that they'd made and how many days later than the agreed date on their order acknowledgement it was. And I said, when you've given me an invoice with 100% on it, I need 100% in return. And from that day, I've always looked at it like that, frankly, is if you want to pay 100%, you've got to deliver 100%. The reality is I just need them to try to get it there 100% of the time. So as what the number is, when things go wrong, it comes back to the point Tony was making right at the beginning about communication. If they don't care, then they don't tell you. If they do care, they're on the phone to you. This is where we are. This is what we're doing. This is what we're trying to, to, to do about it. This is what we can't promise. This is what we can. They're just worrying for you. They're trying to be your team dealing with it for you. It is hard to quantify because you get moments that go against you with products. And we've all had lots of those over the last few years. But it's that word attitude again. If they're just leaving you to do all of the work, there's a really bigger problem at stake at the end of the day. I could not agree with Paul Moore there. I mean, it absolutely hit the nail on the head. In, in circumstances of not being able to pay, all of that, everything he said there, completely agree with it. And it's funny how much it is quite a, a emotive thing, you know, that you feel that they are trying to help you as opposed to a spreadsheet or, or a report or something, that you feel that someone on the other end of the phone is doing their best for you. And that is very emotive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've got a supplier that I've not, I've not seen their rep, a key supplier of ours that I've not seen, or was a key supplier, that I've not seen their rep for oh, since before COVID, so three years now. This brings us on to our next couple of points here on your list, Paul, because uh, it's funny how you can divide these things up into corporate process thing. And the other side of that is the personal interaction thing. So number three on your list here is that that supplier must have a proactive approach to in-store training and knowledge development. And I think that's so important that f- for, for relationship and partnership building is that they come in and talk to you, but talk you through their own products and you, you can sort of soak up their own enthusiasm for them. Yeah, I mean, you, you just get st- stuck in a rut, Andrew, and you, you kind of like in the, in the showroom, you, you get used to what you know, and you don't always remember to share it with every single person at every single opportunity. So you just need reminding of it. And, and often somebody coming in with a spark of enthusiasm and in effect, just having their name is t- attached to their company just gets you thinking about that company. So if they're possible and they've come in with a packet of biscuits and they're pleased to see you and it's at an appointment that you knew was happening, the reality is you leave that meeting thinking they're all right, they are, aren't they? And you just go to the next customer with a bit more enthusiasm. And we need that. We actually need that constant energy from them so we can pass it on to the customers. It's in our interest, but it's also in their interest because not everyone's going to do it. And the ones that do, do get more business from us. 
And, and the relationship's got to be with the design team or the sales team, sales designers, whatever you want to call them. It, it has to be with them as well. You know, the people come and see me and I'm sure Paul and think they've done the job. It's it's absolutely not us that they should be talking to. It's the it's the people at the coalface that they should be talking to and infusing with their products and knowledge and everything else. Absolutely, 100%. Well, you say that, but obviously number four here on your list, Paul, is in-store representing for full account review. So that does mean coming in and talking to you and Tony, doesn't it? Well, it does. Not necessarily. I think they should do both, though. I think that they should almost have mm. a business meeting, have the figures in front of them, and, and not just figures, but information behind them, trends, what's impacted those figures, the, if you like, not just the what, the why. But when they've done that, they should then be sitting down in front of the, the designers and the people sat in front of the customers every day. How's things? What are you working on at the moment? Any reason you haven't got our product in that room? You know, anything we can do to help, blah, blah, blah. So I don't see why they're incompatible, actually. I agree. Macro, micro. Yeah. You know, we look at the macro bit and then they go in and, and as you said, you know, what's going on? You know, we've got two showrooms now, Wimbledon and Chelsea, two very different client bases, you know, so it's, you know, two different messages. What can they do and everything else? I, I don't see that happen a lot these days, to be honest, Paul, but it should happen. Well, they like the job title of, you know, account managers, business development managers. So it's, yeah. they're getting a yeah. lot better at it. But I think they probably need a bit more training assistance and skills to truly be able to do both of those things well. But they're getting better. Number five and six on this list kind of go hand in hand. And it's really interesting that they're on here because I would have put this down as a doesn't need to be said, if you know what I mean. But number five and number six are access to technical information online and access to technical support personnel. And the, the idea that you've put them on that list suggests that sometimes that doesn't happen. It doesn't. It doesn't. It comes back to probably the size of the organization. But we live in a world where you just need things quickly, don't you? You just need it immediately and you need it when you need it. And that could be Sunday night, could be midnight. It doesn't matter. If you can't find the information on a web page somewhere or know that you can send a message to someone that is answered quickly with the answer, you're frustrated, you're stuck, and it's not a good place to be. So Companies that are established and are doing it well, who recognize it, have populated their sites with great data and everything else, they are so much easier to deal with because you just feel like, even if you don't use it, you know it's there. At the end of the line, there's a consumer, there's a human waiting for an answer and are relying on us giving them that answer. And when you can't get that information for them, it becomes then very frustrating and it's our brands that get hit by it. It's not as normal as you think, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> in summary. Number seven here on your list, which really that's at number seven. I know these aren't in order, but it's weird that it's number seven out of ten, which is good retainable gross profit margins. You've got to make some money out of it. But as you said originally, that is only one of the criteria that we're looking at here, where perhaps maybe suppliers think that that is the only criteria. Because you can't actually make a good retainable margin without all the other points being in place is the reality. Yeah. You know, you, if you don't sell it because nobody wants it or nobody wants to sell it, it's zero regardless of the, the off invoice terms. Um, and if it comes back, it's a problem. If you lose customer service and you've got to go out two deliveries and on that story goes. So it's actually more of an outcome, to be honest with you. It's obviously a starting point when you, when for the negotiations because you've got to know where you're hoping to be. But where you end up is, is actually the result of everything else. Retainable is the key word there. I'm 100%, yeah. 
eight and nine here we've kind of already covered, but they are so important, which is a can-do attitude to all departments of our business, and they need to be personable and enjoyable to work with. I mean, it's that biscuits thing again. I'm fixated on the biscuits now (laughs) and baked potatoes. But it's that very personal interaction uh, element of this, which is sort of very indefinable. Well, do you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I, th- I think Tony could probably answer this with a lot more passion, actually, but because he's done both <laughs> sides genuinely and he's a, he's a wears his heart on his sleeve, which is great to see. But I kind of think that um, it's quite lonely being an independent retailer. And it's a strange words to use, but it is in the sense that people have been doing this job 10 years, 20 years, 30 years and so on, that the people who turn up into your showroom, you sometimes see them consistently. They don't always move around. And if they do, you, you still might cross into their past they become quite good friends of yours and you look forward to seeing them and you like having a drink with them or, or, or whatever and the, the events that they do, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, when you kind of look back on your career over 10, 20 years, you're glad that you had all of that in place because it can't just be about numbers. It can't just be about business. and It can't just be about metrics. You just want to enjoy yourself. And if you are alone in your business or just got a couple of people in there and a familiar face walks in and has a cup of coffee, even if you waste half an hour talking about everything going on in the world and putting it to right football and everything else, it's enjoyable. And who doesn't want to enjoy their day, you know? Yeah, again, I'd agree with everything Paul so I said. And, and I do think, you know, we work in an industry where that happens. I, you know, I've got lots of friends in this industry. I can think of a few straight off the bat that, you know, I've known from working with them and then they've then sold to me. They've moved from different companies and remained friends. And, and I've got friends from the company that's, that they've moved from and everything else. I do agree with that. I do, I do think, you know, where we're, where we're a little bit backwards in things like, you know, on time and in full deliveries and things, I do think that we're very good at an industry that keeps the people retained within the industry definitely so number 10 on our list i think is something we haven't actually discussed really which is a consumer focused marketing drive to create sales opportunities in other words that the your supplier that you have a partnership with is doing their best to drive customers towards you with their marketing do you feel that everyone gets this right gets this wrong how important is it to you tony what do you think uh, yeah, it's a massive, it's a massive mix, to be honest with you. I think they all intend to do it. I think it's becoming more and more difficult because of the way that they true tries to focus on things like sustainability, wellness, health, nutrition, and stuff like that. I think it's hard for, for supplies these days because there's a, there's becoming, it's becoming a whole education process that is required for the consumers. Steam cooking, for, for an example. It's an education process that you have to do. So it is tough for them. The good ones do it well. You know, I mentioned Kuka earlier. You know, they, they, that people come in and ask for that brand. So they do it well. But it's an education process without question. And the good ones, and we've mentioned many of them, um, you know, Laufen being a good example. But um, yeah, it's difficult. But yes, it's what we want as a retailer for people to be educating um, consumers um, with the stuff that we're trying to sell. Kuka is a great example. I don't obviously involve myself in kitchens, but we, we bought one of their products. We'd heard of it before we decided on where we were buying it from. And we wanted it because we didn't, we didn't know what else we would get. We hadn't considered anything else. And I don't really think in the bathroom industry, there's anybody that comes anywhere close to truly having a brand that people walk in and ask for. And I find it disappointing and I, I can manage that disappointment because I don't think it's ever going to change. I would say there's, to, to be fair, there's probably one company that stand out for us, which would be Capietra, who I think... Yeah, good company. Yeah, yeah, and I think they embarrass a lot of companies that have 
that are much bigger. And I don't even know what, I mean, if you look at their Instagram, it's something like 130, 160,000 people follow it. And ironically, I bet if you were to ask the, the, the you know, a, a lot of the wives or, or women in the industry, if they've heard of Capietro, I think they'd say yes. And yet they probably haven't heard of, you know, all the other companies put together. And it's it's totally wrong. We, we do need customers to walk in and say, I've heard of this. I hear it's great. And they told me to come to you. We just need help. It's as simple as that. Or the other slant on it, Paul, is that they come in and say, I've got a main bathroom that I never use. And I want to turn it into a spa room because I've read things that say that you can do that. And yes. You can do it easily just by buying certain products. So it doesn't have to be then about the brand. It can be about the solution for the client sort of thing because the brands I've talked about what you can do with a main bathroom that's never used that can make you feel better when you get home from work at, at the end of the day. Yeah, that just general awareness of what one can achieve in their room has got to come from everybody in the industry to just get the consumer triggered to want to make a change and triggered to spend more money on it. Well, look, chaps, I think what we've uh, what we can learn from all this really is if you're if there's any reps or ASMs or whatever listening to this, that you'll know they've heard it when they come into your showrooms now carrying <laughs> a, a box of McVitie's Family Circle or something. We could talk about this all day, but I want to just, before we finish here, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you both how business is for you at the moment, given all the uncertainty that's going on, because you're clearly both very experienced guys. Paul, how are your franchisees faring at the moment? How are you reading the market? Well, the headline is, frankly, that February was the best ever February in the company's 35-year history. So that's clearly good news. In reality, if, if you said, how's business? I'd say, well, which share are you talking about? Figures go up and down. There's some people doing incredibly well at the moment. There's some people that have had a quiet couple of months compared to last year. So I kind of ignore the bottom line figures and, and, and ignore really anything anybody says on it and just focus on an individual plan for each share and on how I can help them improve. But overall, I guess I would say it's slightly quieter than last year. Um, there's slightly more apprehension and cautiousness in budgeting and projections, but we're actually pretty busy. What do you think, Tony? How's the London market? Is the, is the boom over or still going? To be honest with you, because I mean, you know, it's very difficult for me to answer this question because of the flood that we had in our in our Made of Ale showroom. It's put the business under a bit of pressure. And actually, you know, it's where I hope that I do have partners doing the things that we've just discussed. We have lots of leads at the moment. I do think that the way the market's being talked up is making people think about how they spend their money wisely. So it's it's harder to to get commitment. You just got to work for every penny you earn. So work hard for every penny you earn. Mm. Gents, thank you both so much for taking the time out today. I know how busy you always are. It's always interesting to hear your views. So thank you again, and we'll speak again soon. Great. Brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. Huge thanks to Paul Crow and Tony Robson for being my partners in this week's episode. That was so interesting too, wasn't it? I'm sure so many retailers have been nodding along to that one. But there's also plenty of gems in there for any suppliers listening to, and quite a lot of warnings as well, I think. Don't forget to check out the special bonus KBB Review Retail and Design Awards episodes. You can listen now at kbbreview.com forward slash awards podcast, or simply search KBB Review, all one word, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'll also put all these links in the episode description. See you next time.